Louise McSharry on 2FM. Now, it wouldn't be Saturday if we didn't do a little news catch-up and we are so delighted to be joined again by Ellen Coyne, news correspondent with Independent News and Media. Hello, Ellen. Good morning, Louise. How are you? I'm well. It's so nice to see you. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm sweating. Okay. It's it's a bit too hot for me. Yes. I have the fan on full blast. I have the curtains fully closed. I'm yeah. afraid to complain about it in case it goes away. But at the same time, yes. it's difficult out here for pasty people like me. Yes, I am increasing my shower schedule. <laughs> yes. Like... Yes. Dramatically. <laughs> Deodorant is futile. I mean, truly, it is working to the best of its ability, but <laughs> no guarantees. I wouldn't come too close to me at the moment. <laughs> Having said that, I love it. And as you say, I do not want it to go away. Um, I would like this sun to stay for several weeks, please. Um, now, we've got lots to talk about, so let's get stuck in. Of course, we need to start with a quick COVID catch-up. What's going on? Yeah, so it was a quite a difficult week this week. Um, the health authorities had thought it would be the end of the month before we got to over a thousand cases a day, but obviously that happened this week. And last night there was one thousand one hundred seventy-three new cases reported. Um, the cases are rising in um, almost all of the counties um, in Ireland, and the most notable thing is that there has been an exceptional rise in cases in people aged between sixteen and eighteen, but also in people aged nineteen to thirty-four years old. So to put that into context, out of the over 1,000 cases yesterday, um, over 50% were in people who were 19 to 34. Um, and the HSE put out figures during the week that said that 80%, 87% of the new COVID cases, cases over the last two weeks were in people under the age of 45. And just to compare, in January, 40% of cases were in people over the age of 45. Mm. So the HSE is kind of making clear now that we actually have a new vulnerable. And the new vulnerable are younger people who are unvaccinated so far. Um, yes, up to 5% of new cases are people who have already been vaccinated, but we've always known that vaccines are not 100% mm-hmm. um, effective. Um, and the HSE is just kind of saying, if you're one of the people who's still waiting for your vaccine, you do kind of need to still be limiting your contacts, trying to meet outdoors where possible, not engaging in what they describe as risky indoor mm. behaviour, which I guess is very difficult when, you know, over 70% of the country has had their first dose. So you're probably looking at people um, you know, doing things that you would like to be doing. Yeah, I had this conversation with a friend of mine during the week and she was saying um, she's in that category. She's in that younger bracket and she's waiting for her. She has her first dose, I think, next week. And she was saying that it's be- she found it fine staying in. She found it fine staying away from people and like not doing stuff over the course of the last however long, 14, 15 months. But now that other people are out and other people are living their lives, it's really difficult. And I fully sympathise with that. Oh yeah, like at some point it's going to feel like discrimination, particularly when, you know, the indoor dining comes in and it's going to be people with vaccine certs. Or when you're watching people, you know, posting Instagram boomerangs of their Prosecco in the airport and stuff because they've been vaccinated first and they've been able to arrange foreign travel. That is very hard, particularly when we know that, um, yes, all along, the kind of wisdom has been that COVID-19 affects older people more but younger people are the new vulnerable cohort now and they're still just as susceptible to long COVID and there's a report in the Irish Independent today about you know huge swathes of young people who are really really struggling with the effects of long COVID Mm. Um, the HSE did announce that the online booking system since yesterday was open for people aged 25 to 29 so that's for the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines Mm. we know that already all young people are able to get the uh, one shot Janssen one from the pharmacies and from Monday they'll have um, details for the next group but we're kind of at a point now where there's a little bit of vaccine inequality maybe based on how busy your pharmacy is where you live um so you know people aren't getting the vaccines necessarily in order of age because it's a bit kind of 
higgledy piggledy yeah. and all over the place. And I know that we are getting closer and, you know, the HSC is saying that eventually our vaccination programme will kind of outstrip Delta. But it's very difficult if you're waiting to restart your life again and you're watching other people get ahead with it yeah. ahead of you. Yeah, and it may only be a few weeks, but it's a few weeks at the same time. Exactly. Um, OK, uh, then let's talk about um, this situation with the Rotunda, uh, a trial that's happening in the Rotunda Hospital. That's right. So the Rotunda has a trial now for at-home inductions, which are actually quite common in like the UK and Australia, but it's never really happened in Ireland. And I know this because I actually had one earlier this year and it was one of the first ones that Hollis Street had kind of been rolling out. COVID kind of brought it forward. So what happens is you go in, they start the induction in the hospital. And then the idea is if it's, you know, a straightforward pregnancy or a first time pregnancy, you're able to go home, wait for it to kick in. Oh, my God. The dream, the dream. Um, and then when your contractions get closer, you go back into the hospital as if it had kind of kicked in naturally. Oh my God. I know. Such a good idea. I was in that hospital for so long <laughs> and I could have been at home. So, I mean, they're still at the early stages. So it, if it was a straightforward pregnancy and if also you were within a certain distance of the hospital, like God forbid, if something had gone wrong. Um, that's what they told me anyway. For me, miss four induction attempts it didn't work but maybe for someone else it would have <laughs> but the Rotunda is kind of doing a trial as well to try to bring this in but it's attracted a little bit of controversy because it's being offered to women who are 39 weeks or 39 weeks plus four days pregnant and normally the kind of international standard is that inductions would usually be offered to someone maybe if there was a risk to the woman or the baby but usually if you've kind of gone over so if you're like 41 weeks or yeah. 42 weeks pregnant um, and just some concerns have been raised by experts, experts who say say that when this um, at-home induction is being offered, it might be that the hospital may be kind of overplaying the potential benefits of it and maybe not making clear what the risks are. Mm -hmm. So Valerie Smith, a professor of midwifery at Trinity College Dublin, was kind of saying that um, she had some concern about the time frame that it was being offered to women. And she felt, again, that it may have been overplaying the potential benefit of the at-home induction while not giving the same attention to the potential risk. Um, you know, kind of if you do have an induction, there is a chance that it can be slightly more painful. There's also a chance that when you go in slightly, there's also a chance that the delivery, uh, you might end up needing some assistance. So maybe like forceps or something like that. Yeah. And that wasn't really made perfectly clear. It's it, tricky yeah. because like by the time I was offered an induction, I was I was 41 weeks and five days pregnant. Um, I was so pregnant. I was so <laughs> desperate that like you know I would have said yes to anything that meant the baby was leaving yeah, my body and yeah, a lot of yeah. women reach that desperate desperation stage kind of a, earlier than 40 weeks it's hard at that stage of your pregnancy yeah. and with an induction you get a set date yeah. where you know it's going to happen and again like you I was like yeah you know a natural birth I have all these plans and then by the end I was like I'll, I'm nine and a half months pregnant yeah. whatever you can do to evict this baby I will yeah. say yes to I will sign anything yeah. but I just think in the context of COVID and we've spoken so much about you know people being kept apart yeah um, I think it would be really interesting if this became a normal part of yeah. the maternal services because it's so nice to kind of go through the classes with your partner and practice the breathing and stuff and have your bouncy ball and all that stuff and to be able to do that together at home yeah. before you go into like the clinical setting of yeah. a hospital. Yeah, well, like when I really think nice. about when I was induced with Sam, my older son, I was in, you're, you're in like a holding ward yeah. and I was in a holding ward with seven other pregnant women and the, the woman opposite me was di a difficult woman, okay? And... She required a lot of assistance and a lot of attention. And every time someone came to her little cubicle with the curtain, her mother stepped out of her cubicle and into mine. 
<laughs> like, there was no space. There was nowhere to go. So she was like, I'll give my daughter privacy and literally stepped I into mine. Privacy. I was like, what is going on here? And I could have been at home. I could have you been, could at, have home. been yeah. at home. Yeah. Okay, well, I watched that with interest. That's interesting. Um, okay, now let's talk about what's happening around the idea of an amnesty uh, to do with crimes occurring around the Troubles. Yeah, so this has been kicking around for a long time. There's been a huge campaign in the UK from backbench Tories and kind of veterans groups saying that... Um, when British soldiers were being prosecuted for killings that took place in Northern Ireland, they were kind of being uh, portrayed as these vexatious cases. So, you know, they were saying, you know, these veterans, this is what they were saying, fought for their country. They're now um, older and their thanks for it is that they're being air quotes, dragged through the courts. So the UK government has been kind of threatening to do this for a long time, but it basically this week said it was going to move forward with effectively an amnesty by imposing a statute of limitations so that beyond a certain date, people wouldn't be able to take prosecutions. This is a major issue, first of all, for the obvious reason that it's denying justice to families who suffered through the troubles, um, who are have been waiting an extremely long time for access to justice. But second of all, for the kind of lesser important but also significant political reason that the British government, the Irish government and the Northern Ireland politicians have, since the Good Friday Agreement, have very specific, very careful forensic ways in place to deal with what we call legacy issues. So these kind of killings that took place mm. during the Troubles. And you would have had things like the Stormont House Agreement in 2014, which everybody signed up to, which made it very clear that there would be no amnesty for anybody. So not only is the Irish government totally against this, all of Northern Ireland's main political parties are also against it. So Simon Coveney, our foreign affairs minister and the leader of the five Northern Ar Irish parties, met the UK and Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis virtually over the week to talk about it. The Assembly is actually going to be recalled from its summer recess on Tuesday to discuss the issue. And Micheál Martin was talking about this during the week. Like, obviously, there is a political dispute issue, but he was just making very clear that everyone during this kind of political row must be thinking of the families. They feel betrayed, he said. Yeah. They feel let down. And we have to prioritise the families and victims of so many atrocities during that period of history on this island, mm. irrespective of one's community. Yeah. So it it is, it is a really, really, really serious issue. And it's kind of one more thing added to a long list of things, particularly since the Brexit vote, that have undermined very, very precious things like the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, again, we'll watch that with interest. Um, very quickly, the portaloos from Dublin City are being removed. Yeah, I mean, I'm ready to rise up against this. I hope that nobody forgets during COVID-19 the kind of mini insurrection that we all led with our bladders where people literally just started weeing in their local areas because yeah. there was no toilets available when we were being told to have an outdoor summer. So in June, Dublin City Council caved and installed over 100 portaloos around the city, particularly in local parks. Everyone was delighted. Everyone was thrilled. But it's now been made clear that most of those uh, portaloos are now gone because the council is claiming that demands for the toilets have plummeted. So it makes sense that demand would go down because obviously since uh, pubs and restaurants have opened and shops even and shops even yeah. like shopping centres would have their baby changing and their toilets open people have been able to use those again so they've only left a couple in place but I know that in my park they were slowly reduced from seven to three and yes the three were not being used but that's because they were so full of wee and poop oh. from being under so much demand it was real oxygen 2011 uh, oh, levels no. of bleakness um, 
So people are obviously not happy that they're gone. Uh, some of the Green Party councillors have kind of made the point that, yes, these toilets are really expensive, but maybe after COVID, we need to think differently about our public spaces. Yeah. And we might have to invest in some more permanent fixtures that might be from the council, but it also might be private toilets where you might have to pay like a euro or two euro. But you know that you're going to get a spotless facility in the middle of a park if you do want to continue with the kind of outdoor summer thing that we picked up from this pandemic. Maybe we could even look at something like a compost toilet. I used Ooh. one at Glastonbury. It was wonderful. I mean, much, yeah, it's basically like you throw sawdust down. There's not oh, really any primal. water involved. Very bare grills. Yeah, but actually weirdly less disgusting and <laughs> less smelly than other portaloos. Wow. Honestly, the sawdust kind of soaks it all up or something. Well, maybe bears were ahead of us the whole time. Maybe they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, because we are trying to finish on on, a, on stories that are not so depressing, um, uh, we, we're going to talk about sharks because last week we actually talked about sharks yes. on the program. Yeah. And then in a very timely fashion, this story appeared about sharks in Australia and yeah. how we need to change our language. We're bookending Shark Week beautifully <laughs> so basically australia is saying that they need to rename shark attacks as interactions or negative encounters yes because as we know um attacks from sharks sharks are predators but they very rarely kind of kill or eat human beings and actually they're now an endangered species which across the world are being killed themselves by humans but um researchers are kind of saying that you know this kind of jaws idea like this stereotype as them kind of these man-eating beasts wasn't exactly making them sympathetic characters for conservation attempts mm. so they're trying to change the language around it um and make it something that i mean it might sound ridiculous to some people but it's actually a little bit more accurate and this idea of kind of vicious sharks attacks and the language that we use is actually a modern invention yeah. up until the 1930s they used to call them shark accidents oh which is I mean, it's fairer to the shark, yeah. I suppose. Um, but they're kind of saying that, you know, they are, the PR for sharks has not been good. Steven Spielberg has a lot to answer for. He really does. Like, I, th I think it's, it's correct because the idea that we all are raised with is that sharks are hanging around beaches. Waiting just for waiting <laughs> for you. And like, the reality is sharks are bopping around their ocean life. And if you get in their way and bother them, then they are, you know, yes, they're going to protect themselves, which may involve eating you. But like, yeah. it's so rare, but it's though. It's so rare. It's yeah. so rare. And um, again, like they, it, they are a species that is at risk. And I think you mentioned this last week. Like, there's a petition at the moment to try to change Irish legislation yeah. to make sure that basking sharks would be kind of included as a protected species because they are endangered. Um, and sure, and all they do is eat plankton. Yeah, they're just bopping around, bopping around bopping with their around. mouths open, hoovering up as much plankton as they. Very what a life! Innocuous animals. What a but, life! Uh, they just need a bit of a a bit of a rebrand. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, thank you very much, Ellen Coy, news correspondent at the Irish Independent, and uh, we will talk to you again next week. Louise McSherry on Two FM.